racism and professional sports is our story. We're going to focus today on boxing. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. The history of boxing involves some of the most important themes in the broader history of the United States, racism, political activism, class, and more. But the true story of this extremely popular sport remains largely hidden from the general public. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on the Socialist Program, where we go beyond the superficial to understand the social and political struggles dominating the world today. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moores Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many, many books. His most recent book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing is the focus of today's episode. Dr. Horn, welcome back. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for joining us. For so many people, boxing is a popular sport. Uh, of course, in the in the 1960s, with the with the ascension of Muhammad Ali, uh, boxing went into a whole other realm of popular culture. And of course, as the 60s evolved and Ali played such a central role in it, uh, boxing became not only important as a sport; it became important or reinforced or reaffirmed its importance culturally and also politically. Uh, but I'm just, before we start our interview, I'd like to just ask you about why you decided to write this book about boxing. Uh, your recent books, and we've interviewed you uh, about many of them, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Dawning of the Apocalypse. These were uh, important books about the origin of the United States and went straight at the creation myths that are promoted by the dominant narrative, the ruling class narrative about the formation of this country and this government. But your last two books, uh, interestingly, one, Jazz and Justice, The Political Economy of the Music, and now The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing, uh, a bit of a change. What's your uh, what's your thinking? What led you to these new books? Well, with regard to the music book, uh, I come from a musical family. My younger brother is a well-known jazz guitarist, and I grew up with the music uh, almost from the time I came out of the womb. I was listening to this music, so it's and I still do. <laughs> uh, basically, uh, not every waking minute, but certainly quite a bit. And so I'd always been intrigued by the music, and that's what led to that project. Now, with regard to the project at hand on boxing, I have to confess that for the longest, my habit has been to read the sports pages immediately after waking up. 
And I think I got into that habit because in St. Louis, my hometown, which by the way, has been a hotbed of both boxing and sports and the music itself, uh, I was a child laborer. I do not recommend child labor, but I was a child laborer selling the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, the mainstream newspaper on, on the streets of St. Louis. And as I was selling this newspaper, I got in the habit of reading this newspaper. And I began, of course, to read the sports pages. And as noted, St. Louis has produced a panoply of great boxers. I mean, think of Sonny Liston, for example, who figures in uh, the book at hand, who fought uh, then Cassius Clay um, a number of times in Miami, Florida, and Lewiston, Maine, and very controversial bouts. Think of Henry Armstrong, who was also uh, in these pages, a man who held multiple uh, boxing titles. So I had a long time, long term interest uh, in boxing. And uh, fortunately, I was in the position to do research and write this book. Did you consider yourself uh, a boxing fan? Oh, sure. Not only that, <laughs> but like many youth in St. Louis, uh, I even entered the ring a couple of times. How'd you do? Although getting hit upside my head drove me out of the ring. Yeah, my, my father was an amateur boxer and his his career ended ignominiously in a in a, a four hour surgery on his face. Oh my god. Uh, but but luckily uh he survived and so all of his offspring also became interested in boxing and of course I was of that age, uh, 12 years old, when the Liston-Ali fight, Liston-Cassius Clay fight happened and listened to it in the kitchen on the radio and was in a state of complete ecstasy, I would say. Uh, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to recreate the feeling of that night, uh, but that was a momentous night. Oh, it certainly was, because the man who was known colloquially as the Louisville Lip, based on his hometown in Louisville, Kentucky, speaking of one Cassius Clay, was uh, underrated, despite the fact that he had won an Olympic medal in Rome in the 1960 Olympics. And some thought that Sonny Liston, who had a fearsome reputation, would dismantle the loquacious Mr. Clay in the ring and punish him and pulverize him viciously. Uh, but alas, that did not take place. And one of the upsets of boxing history, uh, Cassius Clay emerged victorious. And you may know that as we speak, uh, about to be released, at least streaming, is this new movie directed by the award-winning actor, Regina King, One Night in Miami, that deals with the night before the Clay Liston bout featuring the football star Jim Brown, uh, Malcolm X, the singer Sam Cooke, and one Cassius Clay, all of whom happened to be in Miami in the run-up to this bout, although, of course, this is a dramatization of actual events that will be depicted in this movie. Yeah, quite a quite a period. Um, and Malcolm X was the was then meeting with then Cassius Clay, uh, later to be Muhammad Ali. That was going on behind the scenes in Miami. Had had Ali already converted to the Nation of Islam? 
perhaps behind the scenes, but it had not been made public. If you look at some of my footnotes, well before 1964, based upon records in the NAACP files at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., you'll find that there was very strong suspicion that uh, the then Cassius Clay had become affiliated with the Nation of Islam, that is to say, well before uh, this momentous bout in Miami. You may have heard about the new movie that will have its debut in December 2020, directed by award-winning actor Regina King. One Night in Miami deals with the night before the man then known as Cassius Clay delivers the stunning victory over Sonny Liston. And the movie talks about his purported meeting before the bout with football star Jim Brown, singer Sam Cooke, and the man then known as Malcolm X. So Mr. Clay, that is to say Muhammad Ali, is still with us in terms of popular culture. And there's, you know, there's a lot of discussion about what was actually going on, Dr. Horn, behind the scenes. Ali, a little bit later, comes out and says he's no longer Cassius Clay. He has a new name. It's Muhammad Ali. He's converted to Islam, and he joins the Nation of Islam, which in the popular vernacular in the mainstream corporate-owned media were, were the black Muslims. Uh, but that conversion uh, was, it seemed, to be based on discussions that were going on with Malcolm X. Had, had he, if not publicly announced but had he actually already converted to Islam and joined the Nation of Islam? Well, there is evidence to suggest that that is the case. If you look at the footnotes in my book, what you'll find is that well before the bout in Miami, leaders of the NAACP with whom he was meeting thought they had reason to believe that he was even then affiliated with the Nation of Islam. In fact, they were trying to recruit him to the NAACP, and he expressed, shall we say, some rather astringent comments about that particular uh, mainstream civil rights organization, uh, which then led them to the suspicion that he was already tied to the Nation of Islam. Uh, it was quite a sensation when, when Ali changes his name. Nothing like that had happened in popular culture. A big star, the world heavyweight champion. He says early in the six, I mean, mid sixties, 1964, or maybe by then it was 65. He says, I'm no longer Cassius Clay. Don't call me that. That's my slave name. Uh, I have a new name. It's Muhammad Ali. And he was considered at that point uh, to be unusual because of the way he pitched, the way he pitched his own boxing events, the fact that he had such uh, flamboyance and arrogance and, you know, coming out with, I am the greatest, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but then to also have this other sort of thing develop where he's not only different in the way he pitches, he's not only different because of his outspokenness and flamboyance, but he's suddenly a Muslim in America in 1964 and not just that, but with Malcolm X, with Elijah Muhammad, with the Nation of Islam, uh, it's again, p 
people, you know, after his death and even before his death, well before his death, he was turned into something of a of a harmless icon in terms of the political establishment. But certainly uh, at that time, he was considered to be a menace. Well, that, that's an understatement. And that particular perception was turbocharged when he refused to be conscripted, refused to be drafted to go fight in Vietnam during that ignominious conflict and made these statements that were widely perceived as being anti-war that led to his being effectively barred from the sport, perhaps during the height of his skill and acumen as a prize fighter. And then he popularized himself even further by touring college campuses, uh, by having a kind of stand-up act as an entertainer. You know that Muhammad Ali also styled himself as a kind of magician. He liked doing magic tricks. And that helped to keep his head above water financially until the U.S. Supreme Court made a decision that allowed him to return to the ring, although fight fans are left to speculate as to what he could have accomplished if he had not been barred from fighting for that lengthy period of time because of his anti-war stance. Yeah, he was 25 years old. He was the undefeated champion of the world when he refused to step forward at his uh, draft conscription event in Houston, Texas. He was stripped of his crown. Uh, I was looking at the New York Times from that period. Um, here's the here's the headline: Clay refuses army oath. Now, even the even the military, when they called him to step forward, called him Muhammad Ali. But the New York Times. Clay refuses army oath, stripped of boxing crown. Now that meant that he was his title was taken away, even though no one defeated him, and his title was taken away, and he was barred from fighting for the next three years. So that these would have been his prime years, twenty five to twenty eight. Uh, again, he was uh, stripped of his boxing crown, Doctor Horn, before before he had a trial. You know, there's the presumption of innocence until proven guilty. I, I was, I also had a personal connection to that because I was a, a sophomore in high school, or maybe a freshman in 1967, and I, we had a high school radio station, WIRQ, a 10 watt radio station, and I had a program, and I, I wrote an editorial that said you can't take his his job away before the trial. You can't strip him of his crown. That's unconstitutional. And of course, I had a big fight with the faculty advisor who said, no, this crap's not going on my radio station. And so I got in a fight with him. I actually was suspended from school. But that's what they did to Ali. They took his crown away and deprived him of his right to live even before the trial. Well, it reflects part of the contradiction of the United States of America. On the one hand, the ruling elite and their acolytes like to trumpet far and wide this idea that this is the citadel of free speech, the marketplace of ideas, and all that. <laughs> but once you take that particular point of view seriously, you wind up being penalized and pulverized like Muhammad Ali was. And speaking of Muhammad Ali, I don't think it has been sufficiently recognized 
that converting to Islam really touched a sensitive nerve in terms of the political psychology of the United States as a whole, which of course styles itself, at least many, style it, styles the United States as a kind of Christian country. Not only that, but there have been these long-time, long-term tensions between not only uh, Christians and Jewish people and Protestants and Catholics, but particularly between Christians and Muslims. And it's now forgotten, but perhaps the leading black intellectual of the 19th century, Edward Blyton, who was actually born in the then Danish Virgin Islands and then left the United States after migrating here in favor of West Africa. And when he moved to West Africa, he converted to Islam and then wrote voluminously about how Islam was the black man's religion, which of course brought him further grief and opprobrium. So when Muhammad Ali not only <laughs> decides not to go into the U.S. military, but at the same time talks about being a Muslim, not only that, but as you suggested, being part of the nation of Islam, which was seen not just as a branch of Islam, but seen as a politically subversive organization, he was touching multiple sensitive nerves. Uh, Dr. Horn, uh, you mentioned that Ali, in order to partly to explain himself and partly to earn a living after he was stripped of his boxing crown when he refused to be drafted into the U.S. Army during Vietnam and said he wouldn't fight in Vietnam. He said, I have no quarrel with those Viet Cong. Um, he, he toured the college campuses. And I want to I play a clip. This is him before a group of college students, uh, white college students. I, I believe it's almost all white. And it may have been conservative and they were they were kind of going at him of course a lot of college campuses were not conservative at that time or were changing from being conservative to being liberal and then radical and then anti-imperialist etc but uh here's it, it's it shows something about ali and his oratorical capacities i mean he was a genius uh he was an athletic genius he was also a verbal person a highly verbal person his intelligence in addition to sports, was verbally presented. Uh, and he really made, you know, if people go back and look at the clips of Ali talking back in the 60s and 70s, that's really astounding. I want to play this short clip. This is Ali talking to these white students. And you're talking about me about some draft, and all of you white boys are breaking your neck to get to Switzerland and Canada and London. I'm not going to help nobody get something my Negroes don't have. If I'm going to die, I'll die now right here fighting you. If I'm gonna die, you my enemy. My enemy is the white people, not Vietnams or Chinese or Japanese. You my opposer when I want freedom. You my opposer when I want justice. You my opposer when I want equality. You won't even stand up for me in America for my religious beliefs, and you want me to go somewhere and fight, but you won't even stand up for me here at home. That's Muhammad Ali on the college circuit, Dr. Horn. Well, what that comment reflects is once again touching a sensitive nerve. The sensitive nerve being how the United States was built upon the basis of fusing, quote, race, unquote, that is to say, being of African descent and class, that is to say, being an unpaid laborer. And this fusing of race and class then was buttressed and bolstered by a kind of devil's bargain, which led all too many Euro-Americans to act 
as a kind of vigilante squad to help to keep that particular political economy in line. And so Ali was touching upon that in his own memorable way. And that kind of comment was not designed to win him uh, friends within the highest elite circles of the United States of America. Yeah, but very inspiring to um, young people who were turning against the war and had been active in the civil rights movement. I mean, th- that was the other thing about his personality. When, when, you know, when Jackie Robinson was the first African-American uh, baseball player to be allowed into the, quote, major leagues, and I want to talk in a little bit about the, the change in status of the so-called Negro Leagues uh, here finally in 2020. Um, but when Jackie Robinson came into, into baseball, the whole sort of demand on him was that he not respond, he not be reactive to all of the racism uh, all of the taunting, uh, all of the all of the things that you it would expect in which Jackie Robinson and all of the other black athletes who came into either the NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball, all of those sports have been segregated sports, whites only sports, uh, and uh, you know for for the NFL it was nineteen forty six, for the NBA it was nineteen fifty. Uh, when black players were finally admitted to the NBA. But anyway, the other part of Ali's personality was he wasn't acting humble. He wasn't acting like sort of uh, hat in hand or anything like that. He was he was like strong and out there and bold and arrogant and flamboyant. And that was another thing the media held against him. Here's, here's another audio clip. We found this uh, in preparation of our interview. It's you know, you'll you'll know of it, of course. It's a poem that Ali wrote about himself. Let's listen. He is the greatest. Yes, I'm the man this poem is about. I'll be champ of the world. There isn't a doubt. Here I predict Mr. Liston's dismemberment. I'll hit him so hard, he'll wonder where October and November went. <laughs> When I say two, there's never a third. Betting against me is completely absurd. When Cassius says a mouse can outrun a horse, don't ask how, put your money where your mouse is. (laughs) I am the greatest. I am the greatest. That was different, Dr. Horn. It was in a sense, but in another sense, if you look at the broad sweep of boxing in the 20th century, you'll feel, you'll find eerie echoes between the life and career of one Muhammad Ali and his predecessor, speaking of Jack Johnson, the heavyweight champion of boxing beginning circa 1910, uh, born in Galveston, Texas, a major entry point for enslaved Africans in 1878. And Jack Johnson was similarly flamboyant, during a much more difficult era of terror and lynching and Jim Crow, which then leads to this attempt to find a so-called great white hope to put him in his place. And of course, that's represented in the movie of the same name starring James Earl Jones as Jack Johnson. That causes Jack Johnson to flee the United States where he winds up in revolutionary Mexico 
during the Mexican Revolutionary Decade, 1910 to 1920, regime change leads them coming back to the United States uh, towards the end of that decade. Uh, by then, of course, he's much more elderly and his boxing career is generally over, but he was seen as a man who was violating the basic norms of Jim Crow etiquette. And so when you had the succeeding boxing champion, speaking of Joe Lewis, he was advised in the 1930s and the 1940s during his reign as heavyweight champion to avoid emulating Jack Johnson, to not smile when he knocks out a white man in the ring. And by the way, uh, these boxing champions, Johnson and Lewis, were being paid handsomely to beat white men into submission, whereas if this were to happen on the streets or at the workplace, you could be subjected to a lynching. That was a contradiction that was difficult to resolve. But Jack Jack Johnson also passed on this uh, political ethos, in a sense, to Joe Lewis, who consorted with Paul Robeson, who supported the third-party candidacy of Henry A. Wallace, who ran against Harry A. Truman from the left in 1948, supported by many of the black left in particular, W.B. Du Bois, Paul Robeson, Shirley Graham Du Bois. And this, too, did not win Joe Lewis many fans and friends amongst the U.S. ruling elite because, of course, he was hounded and harassed after he retired by the Internal Revenue Service, forcing him to come out of retirement uh, in order to try to earn money to pay off his IRS debts. And uh, Muhammad Ali, when he comes along, in a certain sense, he was really just carrying the torch that had been passed from Jack Johnson to Joe Lewis, then to Muhammad Ali. Dr. Horn, Jack Johnson was, um, I mean, it was such a big event for white supremacy in America that Jack Johnson became the heavyweight champion. And then he, he wouldn't, um, he couldn't get on the Titanic. You know, <laughs> I think that's true. Like what a talk about ironies. You, they wouldn't give him a ticket to get on the Titanic. And, and of course, uh, the famous folk singer and blues singer lead belly referenced Jack's, Johnson's failure to get on the Titanic right before it sunk. Uh, Titanic, uh, the lyrics go, Titanic, Jack Johnson, want to get on board. Captain said, I ain't hauling no coal. Fare thee, Titanic, fare thee well. Uh, A celebration of the sinking of the Titanic in a way. Uh, But anyway, that was, all of that was well known in black America, but also uh, Jack Johnson was a hated figure by, uh, you know, in, in white America and certainly by those who had the greatest stake in maintaining all of the iconography of white supremacy. Well, and I think it's really important to recall Jack Johnson's internationalism. I think that is one of the most important aspects of his storied career. Uh, as noted, uh, he was in strict solidarity with the Mexican Revolution. And in fact, it was a bilateral relationship because he was trying to establish in Mexico, just due south of Texas, a beachhead against Jim Crow. He was trying to attract Black Americans then fleeing the horror and terror of lynching 
across the border. And of course, there had been a long history in the 19th century of enslaved Africans fleeing Texas by the thousands to Mexico. And indeed, one of the reasons why Texas is part of the United States and that part of Mexico where it was originally cited was because of Mexico moving towards abolition of slavery and Stephen F. Austin, Sam Houston, and the other founders of the so-called Lone Star State not wanting to accede to this momentous decision. So once again, uh, boxing has been more than a sport. It has been a vehicle for attacking injustice, attacking white supremacy. But at the same time, we would be remiss if we neglected the other point, which is that boxing has also been a sanctuary of sorts of sorts for organized crime, for corrupt business persons. Think of one Donald J. Trump, who during his tenure as an Atlantic City casino magnate was heavily involved in boxing promotions and therefore heavily involved in exploiting vulnerable athletes of various ancestries. If you think of the still leading promoters, Bob Arum of Nevada, and Don King of New York City, but formerly of Cleveland, both in their late 80s, uh, both, of course, made quite large fortunes through their association with one Muhammad Ali. But it's also important to point out that uh, they also made large fortunes by exploiting shamelessly uh, boxers without the grit and intelligence and backup of one of Muhammad Ali. Well, let's talk about the the athlete. Uh, we, you know, there's this the sort of the popular mythology is the athletes are rich. Athletes, especially professional athletes, when they get into, especially nowadays, when they get into the NFL or the NBA, they be, get these gigantic salaries, and they are rich. They are a privileged elite, not quite as rich as the billionaires who own the franchise and who actually do nothing except own the franchise. But but the reality is that the athlete has been the victim of exploitation uh, all the time and for, for so long. There may be some individuals who who really end up doing well, or Muhammad Ali, for instance, some people say he may have made $50 million at the, at the, in the last years of his life, and, and not just the last few years, he was, I know he didn't have money. I, was, I had traveled with Ali for a couple of years. We were making a movie. I had helped organize a trip uh, with him to, to Iraq uh, right before the first Gulf War, and uh, the the government of Iraq actually exchanged or gave our delegation 19 American hostages as a way of, or 16 American hostages as a way of trying to sort of o- open up negotiations with the the Bush administration to prevent a war. So I, I got to I got to know him a little bit. I got to travel with him. I got to know his wife, and uh, he, the man did not have money. He may have made $50 million, but the reason he was going this place or that place over the years is somebody was paying his air, air flight. It's not that he had lots and lots of savings. And then you think about other figures, even I'm talking about the big guys like Joe Frazier. You mentioned in the book, he, he died penniless. Uh, and here you have organized crime and just the dynamics of capitalism 
and the individual we focus on the individual boxer, especially the famous ones, but it is a system of systematic exploitation of the athlete. Well, that it is. I mean, there are countless numbers of boxing boxers who have left the ring with brain damage, for example, uh, who have wound up homeless, for example. Uh, this after making fortunes for those who were arranging their matches and bouts. In many ways, boxing is a metaphor for capitalism itself in terms of how it uses human beings as basically units of production and units to create wealth for the benefit of a tiny few. And then there are other examples as well that are worthy of mention. For example, in the book, I talk about Canada Lee. Now, your listeners may be familiar with him as an actor. He starred in the first anti-apartheid drama, speaking of Cry the Beloved Country, based upon the novel that is actually filmed on site in newly apartheid South Africa, circa 1949, and starring Sidney Poitier, who was still in the land of the living in one of his first big roles. But before becoming an award-winning actor, uh, Canada Lee had been a boxer in the 1930s. But one of the reasons why he left the sport, and this is true for all too many boxers, is because he could not stand the exploitation. Uh, he kept being cheated by his managers, those who were supposed to be looking out for his interests, instead were steadily picking his pocket. And so he migrated, I'm afraid to say, into, into another realm of exploitation, which is acting, uh, which all goes to show uh, that in a capitalist USA, uh, I'm afraid to say there are no safe harbors. Gerald, the um, organized crime element of this is a big part of the story, as you pointed out. And no one who's involved in boxing can really escape it, especially the boxers. And then you have the government also working, as it has for a long time, working with organized crime. There's a lot of overlap there. And of course, then we have we come back into the 1960s, and you're talking about the the fact that the Ali, the Ali ascension to the box to to the heavyweight champion of the world also includes the introduction of the fruit of Islam and the nation of Islam. Uh, and there's this other now force other than organized crime. In other words, another kind of muscle that comes into the equation. How important was that? Oh, it was extremely important. Um, I think one of the problems that these vulnerable black boxers had was that they oftentimes were individuals uh, going up against an entire syndicate with organized crime in the vanguard who oftentimes were not reluctant to use their fists or their pistols for that matter. And this put these boxers in a very disadvantageous position to put it mildly. And so once you had the entrance of the fruit of Islam into the equation, which was a muscle in and of itself, uh, this tended to countervail and counterbalance the muscle of organized crime. And I think that that then leads to a number of boxers, black boxers more particularly, 
uh, being attracted uh, to the nation of Islam. But the larger story is the irony that you have these enslaved Africans who are dragged across the Atlantic at the behest of another kind of organized crime, speaking of slave traders, and then their descendants in the 20th century uh, entering the boxing ring where they are then being subject to being exploited by a newer kind of organized crime. And by the 1950s, as I talk about in the book, you have boxing is on television on a regular basis, this living room appliance that basically skyrockets in terms of being a commodity, speaking of the television box in the 1950s, boxing becomes part of the programming. And those who are in charge of boxing, the unofficial czar, is a leader of organized crime in Philadelphia, speaking of Frankie Carbo and his sidekick, Blinky Palermo. But what's ironic is that because of Joe Lewis's still formidable reputation, he tries to enter into the business side of the sport, of boxing, and does that through a kind of de facto alliance with organized crime. Joe Lewis's man is a black lawyer by the name of Truman Gibson. He's the intermediary between Lewis and Carbo Palermo. But what happens is an object lesson to many younger people in the black community in particular, who oftentimes wonder why black Americans have not been more successful in building businesses as opposed to just being exploited athletes, for example. And this episode involving Lewis and Gibson on the one hand and Carbo Palermo on the other helps to illustrate why. Because if you build a business in the United States and you don't have links with the U.S. attorney or the district attorney and your peers and or antagonists do, what happens is that the U.S. attorney or the district attorney then brings an indictment against you, which happens to Truman Gibson, and he barely escapes prison, but he's driven out of the sport, which then adds to the downward tailspin of the finances of one Joe Lewis, where by the time he passes away, he's notoriously a greeter at Las Vegas casinos, not unlike a greeter at Walmart in 2020-2021. Just to help the younger audience understand what that means, how big was Joe Lewis when he was champion? Well, Joe Lewis, along with Paul Robeson, may have been the best-known Black Americans on planet Earth, perhaps even the best-known U.S. nationals, given the popularity of uh, boxing as a sport, which, of course, has a worldwide popularity. Uh, you might have seen the photos of one Nelson Mandela with boxing gloves on and uh, basically showing his mettle as a, a fighter. Uh, boxing, as you know, has produced a number of great uh, African uh, champions as well, including John Mugabe of uh, Uganda, for example, or Azuma Nelson of Ghana, uh, for example. And so Joe Lewis was at the top of the pyramid. The heavyweight champion was oftentimes seen as the emperor of masculinity. And there hangs a tale because on the one hand, because of slavery, 
you had this canard that black men in particular were not real men because real men, quote, do not allow themselves to be enslaved, quote unquote. And this leads to this long time, long term attempt of black men to show that they are real men, which then propels them into the boxing ring. But at the same time, I'm afraid to say that trying to establish one's manhood on those terms is kind of a fool's errand, and it has negative downstream consequences for many black men. I've already made reference to some of the consequences with regard to brain damage, but you could also uh, if you chose to do so, could track, track downstream damage in terms of the difficulty in constructing human relationships with these toxic viewpoints about masculinity. But what happens, as I point out in the book, is that this is baked into the cake of U.S. culture because one of the many reasons why these Black American men have done so well in the sport of boxing is that if you go back to slavery, there was this sport for the entertainment of slave masters and their friends called the Battle Royal, where you would blindfold young black men, put them into the ring, and have them go at each other, sometimes seven, eight, nine in a ring, with the champion emerging from that Battle Royal and then getting various kinds of prizes. Bo Jack, who was a top black American boxer of the 1940s, born in Augusta, GA, by the way, he got his start with regard to battle royals, which suggests that this rather horrific form of entertainment survived slavery. So this helped to create this culture of fighting back amongst black men, which then translates oftentimes into ring champions. But I should also say that this book also deals with women boxers, and you probably know that Muhammad Ali's daughter was a champion uh, female boxer, and they oftentimes too were ensnared in battle royals as well. Gerald, I want to move on as we as we begin to to wind down here as time starts to run out. I mean, it's a fascinating discussion, and I really I really want all of the people listening to this to to get this book. Uh, your publisher is International Publishers. Uh, and again, for everyone, the name of the book is The Bitter Sweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Uh, again, boxing, a microcosm of capitalism and racism in capitalist America. Uh, but let's just talk for a moment about what's going on in sports. Uh, in professional sports, but also, you know, briefly about college sports, where there's struggles to to end the the complete exploitation of college football players and college basketball players, and and to allow uh, these uh, athletes who give everything to the to the team and to the school and their lives, uh, and who are unpaid but the source of great profits. We want to talk about that, but. In the, re- in the last couple of weeks, in the last couple of weeks, the, finally, in 2020, Major League Baseball has announced a change in the status of the so-called Negro Leagues, thus giving equality to the Negro Leagues in terms of players, baseball players 
who competed uh, during parts of the 20th century who were excluded from Major League Baseball because they were black. And, you know, we and, and it's going to have an impact on statistics. It's going to have an impact on how history is understood. Uh, I, for all of us who were growing up when Roger Maris uh, hit uh, 61 home runs and beat Babe Ruth's record of 60 uh, home runs, it was always said there's going to be a little asterisk next to the Roger Maris because unlike Babe Ruth, who only played 154 games by the time Maris was playing right field for the Yankees, it was 162 games. So he had eight more games to get that extra home run. But every statistic, every statistic in Major League Baseball should have an asterisk on it because until now, uh, all of the black players who were excluded from the major leagues, and we know the names of Henry Aaron and Willie Mays, Satchel Paige, Luke Easter, uh, others who were who finally were admitted into Major League Baseball sort of later, well, not in the case of Willie Mays, he was still young, but for the others later in their careers. Um, anyway, I want to talk about that and why that's happened. First, let's hear, have an audio clip. This is ABC News broadcast about the decision to include professional statistics from the Negro Leagues into the record books of Major League Baseball. Let's listen. Tonight, the move long overdue. The baseball record books about to be forever changed. Major League Baseball declaring that the Negro Leagues that operated between 1920 and 1948 will now be recognized as official major leagues. Their stats, their records, some 3,400 players will now join Major League Baseball's official record books. In addition, baseball legends including Jackie Robinson, Willie Mays, and Satchel Paige will all see their official records climb. Their Negro League stats will be added to their Major League ones. Uh, Gerald, there was a review of this exclusion back in 1968. Major League Baseball had a, a commission about it and decided not to include the Negro Leagues uh, as equals in the Major League Baseball uh, sort of universe. Anyway, this is the consequence of masses of people going into the streets in the last few months. That's why this happened. Well, uh, undoubtedly, and it does not speak well for MLB, Major League Baseball, the major entity with regard to the sport, that uh, it took so long for them to do the right thing. Uh, I would only urge and encourage uh, MLB to take the next logical step which is to pay reparations to the families of Satchel Paige and Josh Gibson and Cool Papa Bell and the other great black stars who were barred from the sport for so many decades and were cheated out of having a decent livelihood. That would be the correct and decent thing to do. I should also say that even though I'm happy to see that MLB has taken this step, we need to realize that MLB uh, is going through a difficult period right now. Uh, they just went through a COVID season, which meant few fans, to put it mildly, attending games, which then means a lesser amount of revenue for the owners of these baseball franchises. There is a battle taking place right now as we speak as to how the 2021 season will evolve, 
Will fans be allowed into the stadiums? If not, what does that mean in terms of revenue? What does that mean in terms of broadcasting the sport on television? What does that mean in terms of the paychecks of the players? And I think that MLB also has learned a difficult lesson. It's oftentimes said that experience is a harsh teacher. And I think MLB could attest to that because MLB has not been attentive to the point that a number of Black Americans have been alienated from baseball for various reasons, not least this exclusion of Black stars over the decades. And this has led to a decline in the number of Black Americans who are excelling in the sport, many of whom have gone on to excel in other sports. And MLB, pardon the expression, is trying to play catch-up ball right now by making various overtures uh, to the Black American community so that they can attract a Black American athletic skill. And it's unclear to me if this latest maneuver will be enough to do so. Yeah, of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball, exactly two have black managers, two out of 30. And of the 30 teams in Major League Baseball, the number of black Americans who are the head of baseball operations, that number would be zero. Uh, Again, you're right, Dr. Horn, long overdue. Baseball is going down. Uh, Very, very noteworthy that at the at the beginning of the season, opening day, baseball players, black and white and Latino, of course, because there's so many Latino baseball players, they were all taking a knee on opening day. And again, this was in the middle of this national uprising against racism. Tens of millions of people were in the streets uh, demanding uh justice, demanding an end to the epidemic of police killing and police violence or defunding the police, taking down Confederate statues, a movement uh, in terms of its dynamism in a relatively short period of time, perhaps unprecedented. uh, Suddenly, like baseball is like baseball players are taking a knee and they don't have the fear of the owners threatening to fire them, uh, which is exactly what happened to football players after Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed took a knee. but then I just saw this thing on TV on uh, on Sunday. It was like two weeks ago before one of the football games. There was uh, something called the National Football League, NFL Trailblazers. And it was they honor people who are trailblazers in the NFL. And that week's trailblazer was none other than Colin Kaepernick. And so it was like, Colin Kaepernick, he's given money to charity. He's done this and that for the good of humanity. He helped bring the cause of racial justice and uh, justice with the police to the public eye by taking a knee at football games. This whole like sort of weird, surreal, the NFL patting itself on the back for Colin Kaepernick's pioneering trailblazing work and then at the very end of the of this thing weirdly it says and there are reports that he would still like to play football in the national football league anyway uh all of this has happened all of these gyrations by these big capitalist uh, sports baseball football the owners the billionaires this is a consequence of what's going on 
in the mass movement of people. And that mass movement has, in fact, been partly at least catalyzed by the heroic and punished activism of Colin Kaepernick. Well, yes. And Colin Kaepernick, as I'm sure he would be the first to acknowledge, in turn is sitting on the shoulders of those who have come before, not only the aforementioned uh, Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, but recall that when Muhammad Ali was coming under fire, uh, there was a famous meeting that took place where you had the football star Jim Brown, the basketball star Bill Russell, and a number of other leading black athletes who decided to stand by him. This is during the tumult of the 1960s. And as you correctly suggest, one of the reasons why Colin Kaepernick and these athletes who have fallen Colin Kaepernick have been able to surmount and mount these protests is precisely because of a mass movement. And I think that that's one of the lessons of U.S. history, that so many things are possible once people take to the streets, once you have a mass movement. It causes millionaire athletes to become much more courageous, for example, which in turn has a knock-on effect in bringing even more people to the streets, even more people to the progressive banner. And I think that in turn, that's one of the lessons I'm trying to impart to those who read this book, The Bittersweet Science. Final words, Dr. Horn. Uh, you write so prolifically. You have so many books. I was showing your, uh, showing a friend your book, and and she said, didn't he just come out with a book three weeks ago? And I was like, almost. And the question is, how do you do it? What's your method? And any words for, for young writers? Well, it's difficult for, for me to address that question. N number one, you know, since I do history, which means I'm not a fiction writer, uh, things don't just come out of my imagination. Uh, for, to have someone address that, uh, perhaps you should invite Walter Mosley or someone like that onto your program, people who write largely from their creative imaginations. I, I do research, which presupposes a fair amount of travel, which now has been curtailed as, as a result of archives closing because of the pandemic. But because of the pandemic, as noted, that's curtailed my research, but I've embarked on a new project uh, nonetheless, and I think it sort of illustrates uh, how one proceeds. I mean, for example, I wanted to do a project on this guy, Sir James Brooke. If your listeners may want to look him up, B-R-O-O-K-E. He was called the White Raja. Uh, from the 1840s up until the 1940s, he, would, he established himself and his families as rulers of this South Pacific Island that's now part of Indonesia. <laughs> and uh, he was, of course, tied to London. But in addition to not finding enough dissertations in terms of just doing one-line research to build the story, I've now built that project out to just look at that part of the world more generally, Southeast uh, Asia more generally, Malaysia more generally, 
Java more generally. And likewise, I had this idea of doing a project concerning Egypt. And what happens is that when you dig into a story like the relationship between the United States and Egypt, of course, one of the strands that comes to mind immediately is this current philosophy of Afrocentrism, which is basically Egypt-centrism, because it puts forth this idea of Egypt being the seat of human civilization, uh, helping to inspire uh, Greece in particular. And what happens, of course, is that once I started digging into this subject, I started finding uh, other strands that I was not familiar with. So I think that one of the lessons that I would leave with younger scholars is to be ambitious and intrepid. Uh, do not be blocked by this idea that perhaps the subject is not worth pursuing because you really don't know until you dig into it. And once you dig into it, you start finding all sorts of things. So at least that's been my experience with projects I've worked on. Very, very interesting and very helpful. That was the voice of Dr. Gerald Horn. Dr. Horn holds the Moore's Professorship of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston. He's the author of many books. His most recent book, The Focus of Our Discussion, was The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. I encourage everyone to check it out. The publishing house is International Publishers. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker.